0: My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides, making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history, and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Apocalypse, apocalypse, why you wanna show up? For this episode, I'm going to take a bit of a change in direction. What we're going to do with this one is, unlike the last episodes where we have had a guest come on and we've talked about something unusual about theater history, today what we're going to do is we are going to run something of a post-mortem, meaning we're going to look at a show after it is closed and talk about what went right and what went wrong. This is going to be a little bit more analytical. I promise you... This will be just as entertaining, though. There's a lot to tell in this story, and my guest has no idea what we're going to be talking about. And so today, to join me, I have a guest who we haven't known each other for a very long time, but in that time we've really started to hit it off. I'm going to go ahead and give him something of an introduction here, because he's got quite a lengthy bio. This gentleman started his formal theater career at the age of 16 in the West End musical Cats as a stagehand. He studied at the Oxford School of Drama under such legendary theater artists like Sir Alan Aikborne, maybe some of you have seen or read his play Bedroom Farce, and the legendary producer Sir Michael Codron. This gentleman worked for the National Theatre for a time, managing one of the theatres within their complex, and oversaw countless productions there before forming his own production company in 1998. His production company went on to win numerous awards, including one Tony for the Best Play for Vanya, and Masha, and Spike, and his productions have racked up eleven Tony nominations in all. He has also won Olivier Awards, an Emmy, and countless other awards for his work. Uh, But also, he uh, is very active in social and political theater, and has even won the Amnesty International Award and the U.S. Black Alliance Award. Now, beyond that, in his copious amount of spare time, he also is a frequent columnist at The Stage, the British theater publication. You can check his work out at thestage.co.uk. He is also the theater correspondent for ABC in Australia, and uh, just is all over the place with uh, different kinds of uh, uh, councils and academies and everything, so this gentleman knows about why theater works, why theater doesn't work, and what's going to go well on stage. My friends and listeners from London, this is Richard Jordan. Hello, Richard. Hey, Aaron, and I'm delighted to be a Trident first timer as well. So it's hey. great to be uh,
1: great to be <laughs> joining you through the wonders of Zoom technology that it, Wyoming and London is able to make this cultural collision somewhere in the sky, and we're able to we're able to connect. Which, of course, you know, you know, who would have thought now? Twelve months ago, when the pandemic hit, that how much we would have relied for Zoom and creativity and cultural collisions, uh, and actually, yeah. you know result of that is how we've ended up getting to connect with each other and um you know mm-hmm. there's been although there's been a lot of dark and difficult things that have come out of the pandemic it's also given us a way to think creatively differently with a lot of a lot of things as well it's created a lot of opportunities strangely to actually discover work in other parts of the world that we might not have done because perhaps we've been starved of culture perhaps in our own in our own you know theatres or our community theatres and things we've had to go and try and find that from elsewhere and it's also because of out of necessity a lot of theatres and companies have chosen to put work out online to watch and so what it's meant is that perhaps you've been able to see this extraordinary experimental company in Poland or this amazing show in London or show in New York or show in Wyoming that you may not have actually been afforded that so in a way the the reach has actually become bigger and I think one of the great things is it's given a platform to a lot of certainly young and emerging independent artists who've demonstrated the fact that if you can just pick up an iPhone and you're pretty good at filming it you can actually Mm -hmm. make a very credible theater performance I mean it's got to be good and ultimately digital is not the solution to the future of theater it's a
0: component and we've got to be very careful as we come back to get that balance addressed right 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 I do appreciate these companies that are now figuring out how to not only say, Hey, we can stream our performances. You don't just have to come to us to see them, but too, they figured out how to tell the story with different camera angles, but still make it a live performance. I think that's a really cool idea. Think about the fact of how Orson Welles, when he
1: did war of the Worlds on radio, oh. was people were so terrified that they thought this was actually happening. And in a way Zoom and what we are creating now is actually a mere extension of what that foundation was. And if you go back and look at that track of how radio and how important that was in the art of storytelling, and now actually how in technology here with Zoom, how important that is in the art of storytelling, but the technique of that and how we have to how we have to think differently. And actually, I think it all comes back to the very essence of what theatre is about, which is that it, it, it comes down to the fact that it is actually about the way in which you tell a story, how you mm-hmm. convey that and how you create that move, whether that's in musical theatre, whether that's in in, in drama, however you, you you set up to explore how to do that, at the heart of it is actually how you come at that and how you tell a story. Which mm-hmm. means, you know, in the purest sense, if you, if you look at a musical like Oklahoma, you say, how do you paint the sunrise? And you take, you know, Rotters and Hammerstein and that brilliant opening, just those first simple bars that they play yeah, at the start Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually then Curly walks out and says, it's a bright golden haze on the meadow. It doesn't matter if you're sat in a in a in a, in a flat in London, uh, you know, a house in Wyoming, a, 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 ho- a home in Japan. You know, you mm-hmm. are there. The sunset's been painted <clears throat> for you. You don't need a whole set there. Those simple bars of music and just those first few lines have taken you into a world within a world with its own reality, with its placement. Of that allows you to, to go somewhere extraordinary. To me, I mean, for, for, for watching a theatre show, the greatest moment is when an invisible hand comes out of the stage and in some way it makes that connection with yours and it pulls you into the stage. And it doesn't happen very often, but in those moments when it happens, it's it's, yeah. it's golden. And I think as a kid going to the theatre, it's 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 really formulative, but the experience changes in a way as you go along because your expe- expectation changes, which is why it's quite thrilling, but why it's also quite important that those of us who work in the theatre have an incredibly important responsibility in all of that. And But right. that connection you can make can change your life Exactly. And it doesn't mean that you're yes. going to be up there, yes. up there doing it but mm-hmm. you can discover a love for something and I certainly know for me in the theatre the love I have for it has got me through some very difficult times in my life oh same and, same you know yes. I, I, it, exactly. I'm very grateful for it I mean you know I don't think if you look at producers I don't think that they look like anything in particular if you look like an actor if you look at Ian McKellen you probably didn't if you didn't know what he did and say have a guess at what he did you might say oh I think he might be an actor if you mm-hmm. look at producers, they don't look like anything. But if they look like anything, <laughs> then, if they look like anything, they look like optimists. Because yeah, there actually, you it's go. the optimism that will give you the trust to try and get uh. back on the horse when you fall off, and you will fall <laughs> off sometimes. It's an inevitability of it. Uh, yeah, but the optimism is is in in, in the theatre is glue, and, and not least in the the really difficult past year or so that we've. Oh here. yes. Yes. Coming back now, it is all about optimism that's actually going to be the well, it, has to be. The, it has, the heartbeat it, yep. and the yep. backbone to carry it through. It'll be about it. Has to be. You know, in a sense, we're coming into what could be a quite exciting time for theatre, uh mid challenges. Yes, there's a yes. generation, yeah, you know, and all of us listening and all the you know young graduates coming up and all those people. Mm-hmm. There is very few times where you can actually come in and change an industry and be right. a generation that makes it. and this is this is one of potentially one of those moments. I hope you
0: don't think I'm sitting here laughing at you, uh, wistfully speaking of the role of a producer here. I could continue this conversation forever ad infinitum, but unfortunately, I have a show to do here. And I'm laughing because <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying is. Working so well into what we have to discuss today. <laughs> Fantastic. If, 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 if not, if not, if, if people have just joined <laughs> to this listen, there was a lot more that was discussed, and in fact, it just got lost in the edit. Now, I usually begin these with a question to my guest, but this week I don't really have a question. This time, I'm just going to go ahead and start and let you know, and you probably... I'm, I'm also going to uh, say that... You probably have a lot of insight into this week's topic. I, I really, I really gave myself some hesitation, thinking, should I discuss this with Richard? I mean, he might actually know a lot more about this than I'm about to present. This uh, makes me feel. This makes me feel a little nervous, Aaron, But I also really <laughs> struggle to believe that. <laughs> so here we go. One of the last times a musical about a superhero came to Broadway was in 1966 when. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman premiered. Do you have that in your list? I do actually know that I musical. I thought so. I thought uh, so. Charles Strauss, Charles Strauss musical, if I remember, yep. directed, by yep. Hal,
1: Hal, directed by Hal Prince, who completely yep. believed in that, who completely believed in that production, but it never,
0: managed to, um, it never yep. managed to click. Yep. So here we go. The writing team of David Newman and Robert Benton were first timers in writing plays and wanted to write the next big musical. So to go from I haven't written a thing to, I'm going to write the next, you know, West Side Story. Based on a quirky suggestion from one of their sons, why don't you make a play about Superman? That's what they chose. The medium of comics had not really been adapted to the stage before, and the red-caped superhero's popularity had barely waned since his first appearance in print in 1938. Now, Newman and Benton had soon found themselves collaborating with, like you said, Broadway musicians Charles Strauss and Lee Adams, who had already seen a lot of success with their musical Bye Bye Birdie, and were also looking for their next big hit. And like you said, Broadway legend Hal Prince got wind of all this collaboration, and even before reading a script, offered to not only produce, but to direct. What a team! (laughs) A new musical with built-in household names and a production team with huge clout on Broadway tickets would sell like mad right <laughs> you'd hope so wouldn't you really right right see there's that optimism well in the 1960s comic books weren't quite as ubiquitous or as entwined in popular culture as they are today the play opened to great critical reviews but ticket sales dropped quickly the play ran for only 129 performances and closed three and a half months into its run so yeah yeah well there's a was, lot of disappointed investors right exactly Now, while there was no one factor that could be counted as the primary reason why the musical didn't take off like its titular hero, there are several that should be considered. One is that I mentioned before, comic books weren't really exactly part of the general popular culture, and at that time, comics were still considered something only for kids, even though the musical was written for both kids and adults, kind of a whole family family thing. Also, DC Comics only allowed a few of the characters from the books to actually be used as characters on stage, and these included none of Superman's classic villains, like Lex Luthor or Brainiac. So while writers could use well-known characters like, you know, Superman and Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen, they had to invent other antagonists and more stuff to keep the story going. Some other reasons, the songbook didn't really produce any lasting musical numbers. I mean, I think there's one that people turn to and they go, well, yeah, that was kind of a fun one. The song You've Got Possibilities. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. I think. Mm-hmm. And the general ticket price at that t- for that production was $12 compared to broad- the rest of Broadway, which was running at about $10.95 per ticket. That would be the difference between like an $89 ticket and a $98 ticket today. But with the special rigging involved to make a man fly on stage, the budget for the show is considerably larger than most, hence higher ticket prices. However... Hal Prince is pretty sure he knows why the musical didn't turn out so hot. He blames Batman, or more specifically, the campy TV show that was running at the exact same time. (laughs) So he suggested that since people were already getting their weekly dose of superheroes for free, they certainly didn't want to go pay or make plans to travel to go see them in a theater. Interesting, isn't it? Right? How interesting, because roll on
1: to... uh... Spider-Man the Musical. Oh! And one of the arguments of Spider-Man the Musical was that Batman was a bit of a problem again, because at <laughs> the same time ba- Batman was going out in a musical theatre arena tour. Hmm. That was. Happening. Oh yeah. So, there, is, <laughs> there There is perhaps the there is perhaps the curse there is perhaps the curse of Batman that's that's, that's oh, shrouded over it over um, you know mm-hmm, Broadway mm-hmm. really. I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, Superman the Musical is a concept. Yeah. Again, it's it's the question is. On paper, if you're presented that, it sounds quite an interesting concept because of the mm-hmm. nature of who Superman is, type of okay. the imagery. I mean, just think of those marketing, all the all the, oh, the yeah. branding alone on that. Queen essentially, in many ways, it's a modern musical trying to find a place somewhere on a Broadway canvas. Right, um, right. And actually, yeah. at a time where maybe you know the, the the timing of it was just completely completely wrong. I mean, right. You know, I don't know whether it would have changed had it come after Superstar had opened in effect, Jesus Christ Superstar brought in a modern oh, audience yeah, for a rock yeah. musical. Mm-hmm. So the question being is, would that new audience that perhaps came into those shows have also embraced the, the culty comic book kind of idea of, of, of coming to see that? Because also there was a, a thing that happened there with Broadway, which was it became like, when you're told not to do something, you want to do it more. Right. And <laughs> in effect, it affect the rock musical, yeah. felt like a complete almost like a smashing out of the park against everything else that had gone before, you know, yes. in that sort of era. Yes. You know, and Lloyd, Lloyd, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice roll up in town. I mean, don't forget, it comes also after Hair, and we've got to remember how influential Hair was, you right. know, as, as a musical as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the soundscape of those shows was changing, and one wonders if Superman had just landed somewhere after that, whether it's positioning, might have grabbed something in a slightly different way. It might not have done. Because the challenge of when you try to think about bringing Superman to the stage is actually quite difficult because I'm I'm just thinking now about when I watched the Christopher Reeve movie, for example. Oh, yeah, yeah. and, And actually, you know, it's, the special effects of what you can do in that movie are great. But when you think about Superman as a movie, compared to some of the other comic characters, he's mm-hmm. actually mu- not so much my favorite. He's not my favorite superhero. No, in a yeah. Way, actually, ultimately, he becomes quite boring because he flies yeah. about a bit. You know, flies got, about, with you know, something know, heavy. Mm-hmm. In, in contrast, actually, in a way, if you look to a, a later musical like Spider Man, mm-hmm. Spider Man in every sense should have been a golden ticket. Mm-hmm. Why did Spider Man not work? And in a way, oh uh, hold we'll but, get there okay oh, all right okay i'm just going to say because it's possible that a lot of the problems with a lot of the problems with spider-man are also intrinsic to being found in why superman didn't work and Ooh. actually maybe there's just a hook Ooh. where these two things kind of collide and make things perhaps a little bit
0: that'll you know, be interesting
1: that'll be interesting okay
0: account. so it was estimated that the budget for It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman ranged from $400,000 to $600,000, which today would be between 3.2 and 4.9 million. And at the time, it was considered one of the biggest flops in Broadway history, and in my research, I couldn't find if it lost money, and if so, how much. I can only imagine so, though, only having a three and a half month run and only 129 performances. And, like we've been suggesting, that's as far as superheroes got on Broadway, Until. (laughs) (laughs) In 2002, Sony Pictures released their mega hit film based on one of their staple characters in Marvel Comics, Spider Man. Yep, we're talking about it. (laughs) Okay, bring it on. (laughs) Spider Man. Uh, turn off the dark.
1: Oh, God. Now, one thing, actually, that's really important that actually works in Spider-Man's favor over Superman's favor Okay. is that it gets straight to the nut of the title. Absolutely. The fact being, if you think about it in an ABC advert, you've got, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman. If it had mm-hmm. just gone out as Superman, you probably would have immediately got to the nut of it. I know it sounds crazy. Right. You actually, would have been fine. Funny enough, as, as a title, it would have gone straight in as a bang. So if you were flipping through the ABCs, you're looking mm-hmm. at it should be under an S, but it's under an I. Right. Yes. So immediately, if you look at Spider-Man, Spider-Man comes out and one marketing thing, they go and say, we're going to call it Spider-Man,
0: turn off the dark. So there's your your subtext. Right. Which also, I mean, in in a lot of uh, comic book movies, and I'm a huge comic book fan, huge comic book movie fan, they've just started to say, here's the property colon subtitle. Yeah. You know, it's not like this is chapter two or this is part two. It is X- men Days of Future Past. This is another chapter in the story. That's what we're doing now. The film in 2002 was a box office sensation, easily breaking single day, weekend, and overall ticket sales records. The reviews came in, praising the handling of the source material, mixing a good amount of action and groundbreaking visual effects with a well-conceived storyline and interesting characters. The web-slinging hero was seen everywhere thanks to good marketing and merchandising, and the superhero genre was again appealing to a diverse audience of all ages. It was around 2003 when Irish film and stage producer Tony Adams was working on another franchise he intended to turn into a musical. Adams was looking to expand his production company, Hello Productions, even further into Broadway than he had in the past. However, Adams had a lot more experience producing film and as he frequently collaborated with uh, filmmaker Blake Edwards and produced several of the Pink Panther films, just to name a few. His single theater credit was a collaboration with Blake Edwards and Edwards' wife Julie Andrews when the three brought Victor Victoria to Broadway in 1995. It actually ran for quite a time because uh, Julie Andrews opened that production, if I'm correct,
1: I think it was Raquel Welch who took over.
0: I I I think, I think it was
1: Liza. Liza
0: for a little bit. Liza who took over? Yes. And then, and then Rochelle Lutz took over. It actually
1: had quite a a credible, quite a credible run uh, on, on, on Broadway as, as, as,
0: as a musical. On a, a, on a financial level. Yes. But that's also the production that basically ended Julie Andrew's singing career. Because yeah. she de- she developed some sort of nodes, yeah. they had to go in and she developed kind of, uh, nodules and, and, and right? quite a big problem with her, with her throat as, yeah. a, as a result of that as a result of that show. Exactly, yeah. Well, anyway, back to this story. Adams had been quite interested in getting back into producing on Broadway and was trying to find a good profitable product. The musical he was trying to get off the ground in 2002 was Star Trek Forever. <laughs> And it frankly wasn't going very well. <laughs> well,
1: actually, just to add as an addendum to this point, Aaron, is, mm-hmm. there, is actually, there was actually a Star Trek show that was made in the UK for theatre. Oh, really? There was actually a stage show which never went very far afterwards. And I want—I may be wrong on who produced this, and, and, and forgive me because people may need to go and research and check this. I have a feeling that it was made by um, the producer and creators who created a show called Thunderbirds F.A.B., Thunderbirds was a Jerry Adams TV show in the the, the UK. With the puppets, puppets. right? That show became a huge, huge hit. It it went and it played for many. And I have a feeling that same producer who was then looking at uh, at different opportunities went on to try and look at creating a sort of Star Trek-esque stage musical. And if I remember correctly, it happened at the Churchill Theatre in Bromley, which was a producing theatre just outside of London. And I think it happened in maybe the late 90s, early 2000s. It didn't go on beyond that. But if I remember correctly, it was, it was sitting somewhere in the archives there. So, you know, if there's, if there's, if there's a few geeks out there listening, they can go and research that and try and find a, find a review somewhere to it. But I do think go. that there was something that happened at that particular time. Yep, yep, Well, I mean, it's not that surprising. Sorry, well, the, that particular producer, Thunderbirds FAB,
0: now runs Broadway Across America. So he did ah. he did he, so he so he did he did pretty well. <laughs> uh, he found his niche. Speaking of niches, that's kind of I think why this Tony Adams was looking for like a big name franchise like that instead of trying to come up with a new original story. Because Broadway at the time was all about tapping into niche markets, you know, with things like the full Monty and Mamma Mia. Well we'd entered a, we'd entered an age
1: of yeah. the of the musical, the movie to musical. Yeah, it ain't a movie. If, it, if it's a musical, it's got to have been a movie. It right. began in really the 90s in a, in a, in a massive way, which mm-hmm. when you examine the fact that probably 89, the romance of the British musical kind of sort of comes to an end. Mm-hmm. And we have a short gap and then we see a huge change on Broadway, which is the arrival of Disney. Right. And Disney yep. arrives and realises that with Beauty and the Beast, it yep. actually has a whole catalogue where it can start to create movies as musicals, Disney opens up a, a floodgate of other movie companies that start to look at this. how you end up yep. with Fox Theatrical, you end up with DreamWorks, and you look mm-hmm. at the titles that start to come. So the Legally Blondes, you know, the, the, the Shreks, the musicals, uh, mm-hmm. and even into shows like High Fidelity, you know, yeah. we're talking about a back catalogue where producers who see the success of one thing, which is so often a pattern in, in, in producing in general, which yep. is where you see a sort of pack like because one thing is successful, everyone's trying to say, Well, this must be what the public wants, and they try and Emulated. and actually in many ways it damaged a lot for musical theater writing and original yes. musicals because suddenly a whole raft yep. of composers were pushed into the fact that if they've got to write a show they've got to find something in a back catalog of a movie and they one signed yep. up for that and that's what they're having to adapt because that's right. what the public wants to see right and exactly in a way you know, Hamilton and some of those things start to maybe being able to slowly change that path back onto it again, so yep. we create a, a bit more of a, a bit more, I mean, the Dear Evan Hansons or all of those things uh, mm-hmm. start Hadestown. to change it but in and amongst yes. all of this sits this intriguing movie audience that mm-hmm. suddenly becomes feeling like they want to watch that you know, Disney recreation live. It's the extension of maybe going to Disneyland, only this time it's got a yes. little bit more creative yeah. value. in it. And actually Disney's first product <laughs> of that, Booty and the Beast, is very, mm-hmm. very much like a cartoon-esque sort of formulation in design oh, and presentation. very much is, yes. But the next yeah. thing, of course, they come back to, which of course brings us back into the Spider-Man situation, is when they have the idea of bringing Judy Tamor on mm-hmm. and creating something that's extraordinary The Lion King. What Taymor does with her designs mm-hmm. creates an artistic fusion on Broadway of the of the movie mm-hmm. and the musical in a way that's not being done in another way. It's, it's what makes Lion King a groundbreaking show when she Absolutely. comes out with that design. Absolutely, And actually, yes. therefore, when Spider-Man comes along <laughs> yeah, sometime later, it's understandable why. People would say, "Well, if we need to come and reinvent this, what
0: a what a person that we need to turn. What and, a person and talk about doing it." Right, right. Well, here I'll I'll get right there. Um, so we'll go back to Tony Adams and his Star Trek project fizzling out. We uh, <laughs> <Sorry, laughs> we got a bit si- we got a bit sidetracked. <laughs> we got into we got into <laughs> musical theater geek. That'll to, happen. <laughs> yeah. Now, while that Star Trek project fizzled out, Adams began seeing Marvel's friendly neighborhood Spider-Man splashed over every type of merchandise under the sun and started to develop a new idea. However, as you are probably aware, pulling something like this off is going to require top-notch, big-name talent. And at this time, Broadway shows were also enlisting huge musicians that they could put on that poster. You know, music by Elton John, featuring the music of ABBA, you know. So, Adams, being Irish, was able to make a connection with his fellow Irishman, uh, Bono and The Edge, and they loved the idea of branching out more. But of course, the expanding their repertoire with theater work wasn't exactly the only reason the U2 frontmen got involved. You see, the two rock gods had interest in the project as something of a challenge from their friend, Andrew Lloyd Webber, who had been quoted in the New York Times to say, I'd like to thank rock musicians for leaving me alone for 25 years. I've had the theatre all to myself. <laughs> <laughs> now, Bono and the Edge didn't take it as a direct challenge, but uh, yeah, the gauntlet had been thrown. <laughs> and let's not forget that, uh, that Andrew Lloyd Webber's own ambition was obviously to write
1: rock and roll songs. Right, you know, exactly. That was, I mean, he was. He had a song, actually, Lord Webber has a song that, that was, uh, was song written for Elvis Presley. Um, in amongst his canon of canon of songs, yeah, oh I mean, God. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice were influenced. They wanted to be rock and they wanted to be rock and roll writers. Well,
0: these musicians, Bono and the Edge, would only join up with one condition: they needed a director with impeccable visual sense and a list of credits that anyone could admire, and as you said, somebody who could translate film to stage. So the Bono and the Edge actually were the ones who reached out to Tamor first, but she wasn't quite an easy sell. See, Tamor told them that she would be their director on one condition, that she, quote, could find a narrative something to spark her imagination, end quote. And while she wasn't too excited about the concept of adapting from a medium of comics, she did recognize a connection between comics being something of a modern mythology and how ancient Greek plays being based on stories from their mythology worked out for them. And soon she found her narrative something. The story of arachne (laughs) i see you nodding your head yep okay now for those of you listening if you don't remember your greek mythos i'll give you some help uh told in ovid's metamorphoses arachne is a young woman who challenges the goddess athena to a weaving contest and at the end of the contest when no flaws can be found in the fabric made by arachne athena becomes enraged proceeds to physically beat the girl out of spite and destroys arachne's blasphemous fabric with a bolt of lightning Fully shamed, with no possibility of forgiveness, Arachne hangs herself. Yet Athena does not allow her to die, but rather transforms Arachne into the world's first spider, who must forever spin her webs to seduce her victims. The story, obviously, as many stories in Greek lore are, are a cautionary tale about challenging the gods. (laughs) But you've got to start somewhere. (laughs) So... Tamor laid out her conditions and ideas, and Adams, Bono, and The Edge were pretty impressed. However, when pitched to Avi Arid, chief creative officer at Marvel at the time, he had some objections to the idea that the musical would introduce new characters, and, and along with some of the other darker and more sexual connotations that a character like Arachne could suggest. Tamor wouldn't budge and told Arad, if Arachne's out, then I'm out. Therefore, ered allowed Tamor to proceed with the caveat that Marvel could pull out of the deal and take their franchise with them if they weren't satisfied with the first stage reading sounds like a sort of standard deal that you'd probably take and say
1: right. well let's see what we're what we're going to I mean that's in fairness up to this point there's nothing uncommon there I mean in a way right. you know there's there's the out if they need the out but it right. gives them the ability to say okay well let's just see what they were what what they're coming up with and of course based on the success of the multi-global hit of the lion king right uh why wouldn't you turn around and say okay well let's just see where this goes right exactly plus of plus the two composers that you've potentially got sat there and and Uh plus quintessentially you've got possibility of a if it being a new york destination tourist show yep there you go
0: yep now, it thoroughly inspired Tamor to inject this mythological connection into the zeitgeist and create a production that would transcend the standard comic book fair. But she needed help putting her big ideas into words and creating dialogue to form the story. Thus, rounding out the creative team was Glenn Berger, who had some success writing off-Broadway and with some televisions episodes for children's shows. So, we have a producer with one theater credit to his name a musical writing team who had never written a musical or really cared to know them that well, a visionary writer-director who saw an opportunity to amplify the effect of the medium of comics had when they were adapted to the stage, and a co-writer who had received a lot of critical acclaim for his work but had never written a musical and had never written for Broadway. <laughs> All right, so it's a, it's a, but you do have, in some
1: elements, the ability that if you can get them the right sort of guiding team around that yes. to harness it, you could have
0: something that could be quite extraordinary. You could. Yes. Still eager to work on the project, all four members of the creative team had some work to do before the writing phase. Tamor and Berger needed to come up with a basic plot line that would allow for the kind of spectacle that could be associated with bringing a comic book to life on stage. And Bono and the Edge needed to be educated in the finer points of musicals and musical history to better understand how musicals are created and marketed and produced on Broadway. So to help with the latter... Tony Adams had his production team burn a four CD collection of Broadway songs from the last 60 years to bring Bono and the Edge up to speed. But Berger, who wrote a whole book on this thing, reported that in initial meetings the musicians didn't find that as helpful. Quote, they would eventually dismiss nearly all the songs as mawkish, dopey, or, I'm gonna try my best Bono here, just pants. Like you're saying, I can I could just imagine them hearing that opening of of Oklahoma and just going, oh nah, there's just nothing here.
1: But isn't that an interesting question as well about the fact of how something's presented and how it makes the connection and what you're sharing? Because you've yeah. got to look at a show and how you contextualize that song in certain ways. And obviously there's songs like Memory and "Catch" you can lift out and it stands as a standalone classic. Right, but right. But with most musicals, it's so webbed into its construction. You uh-huh. have to understand how the, the elements of why it works and how it joins together. Because the architecture of a musical and its construction is actually its glue. Its book is the other thing. You have yes. nothing with that book. But right just listening to a lot of random songs and saying, well, this was successful in this song. If you're not a a musical theater fan, or or you're going to come to it scratching your head a little bit about saying, well, you know, just listen to this out of a complete context. And, possibly a little bit strange. Yes, Um, yes. And most importantly, the musicals almost are not the ones that are the hits. You want to go back to listen to the musicals that perhaps haven't worked. And why has that not worked? Why has that not connected? And and what's what's the difference? Because there is a very, very fine line between the success and failure of a show. Mm -hmm. And it can just tip in the slightest way Right. And that construction of it and the architecture of the musical is its absolute glue and how it sits and how it frames that. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason why Botters and Hammerstein were so successful and knew what they were doing because there was a st- structure of how it works and how it, how it connects. And, and, and in a way, if you think about the music, probably that you two and Bono are f- Listen to a lot, or you're probably needing to also try and be quite clever when you burn the CD of trying to (laughs) to structure that to the shows that perhaps they will respond to. Right. And then how you take that to a stage further to how it makes it work and how it
0: it, it connects in that particular. Here's your chronology.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's actually like you know, it could become quite a boring history lesson if you weren't that that, <laughs> right. that interesting. You've got to find the thing that that really sits down and suddenly connects connects with you. I mean, if you yes. if you love musicals, it's going to be fascinating.
0: Right, but right. at that
1: particular point, you're coming at it in a certain way, and and you know, there's 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 no conceivable way you'd probably say, well, you too, and I don't know, doing. Kispy Kate are going to find a, <laughs> an immediate parallel with each other. Uh, no, right? yep. and actually yep. finding—I mean, actually finding—rent would probably be quite a formula I,
0: w- I was just right. saying. I was just thinking that I'm you like, know? if they would have sat down and just said, "Here, listen to Rent," and yeah. uh, maybe I don't know, chess—that might have been. Yeah, or well, even okay. going right the way through and pulling out a show like a Hedwig
1: and the Angry Inch. But don't yes. forget, they're also ultimately on this great strive because what they have now is the fact that they are making a commercial musical. So yes. Hedwig begins yes. from its seats. Look at Rocky Horror. It begins uh-huh. in its seats upstairs at the Royal Court Theatre in 120 seats. Right. And it takes several stages to become a hit. It, mm-hmm. you know, people look at Rocky Horror now, the global franchise that it is, and say, wow, that's a hit commercial musical. You have to remember that the journey, if you're trying to emulate Rocky Horror and that young audience and how it, how it became hip and cool, it began in a way, in a really specific way. If you look at Spider-Man... In a way, Spider-Man perhaps starts from the intent of, we're going to make a commercial musical and make a lot of money to start with. Yeah, yeah. And actually... If you look at the musicals that become hits, they often don't start always from the template of that, and the ones that that often fail have come because they're trying to emulate something that previously was a success that had grown in a certain way. Of those who try to emulate, one of the great things about Little Shop of Horrors, when Howard Ashman, who who wrote the lyrics, died tragically young, but directed that production of uh, the original production of Little Shop of Horrors, he would never allow it to move from off Broadway onto Broadway. Credited that as being intrinsic to why Little Shop of Horrors became the success that it did. That it found that cult audience and it could tick along very nicely. But deliberately, they did not go to Broadway because if it had failed on Broadway, it's a game over. People are not picking it up and saying, you know, let's let's remake this show or do something else with it. They made a cult, uh, uh, they made a cult classic and a cult hit. And in a way, it's a bird, is a plain Superman. It started in that way. It might have actually become that cult hit that might have grown in a certain right. way and still be seen revivals. With Spider-Man, of course, it's different because times moved on then. But we've got this commercial juggernaut that's now rolling. Spider-Man, in a way, what was it trying to be? Was it actually trying to set up to ultimately be a Vegas show, or was it trying to do something that was quite interesting? And actually, did it just fall down a
0: big gulf in the middle because actually, oh, in the well. end of it, they didn't really know what they were trying to do with it? Well, we're, we're getting there. Um, <laughs> now, like we were saying, you know, uh, Bono and the Edge hadn't really latched on to the whole idea of musicals and, and, and the four CD set that they got. So they set out to write a musical very similar to what they had already known how to write. The tunes, the rock tunes that they were so well known for. But now the challenge was to see how they could adapt that to a plot line that Tamor and Berger would be inventing and have an overall arc. Arguably... I don't know how much of a fan of you 2 you are. They had not really done something like this in any of their albums. They don't have like a concept album. They they have themes that they they, uh, say, okay, this is what this album is about overall. And we're exploring all kinds of different aspects of it, but they don't tell a story. Now, it turns out that Tamor and Berger found a lot of inspiration working together and their creativity soared in the early stages of the writing process. Their story involved arachne becoming something of an immortal spirit who more or less haunts this earth to find someone worthy upon whom she can bestow her amazing powers this is quite a departure from the mythos that's told in the comics but since they seem to be given a certain element of carte blanche until marvel could approve or disapprove the sky was the limit (laughs) and there was also a slightly big intrinsic problem with this book which Uh was
1: that um unfortunately they became more interested in arachne than they did in spider-man
0: Yes. And then you hit
1: an enormous problem because actually if you Mm -hmm. saw the original, I I actually saw all the versions of Spider-Man and I can tell you the original version of Spider-Man was interesting because it really was Arachne's story. Yes. And it wasn't that Spider-Man wasn't there, but actually the dominant component. Now this is a very big problem because if you're selling a show that is Spider-Man with Spider-Man fans, they want Spider-Man. Right. And actually you have to therefore get the balance as to how that structure is of where it's going. But you fell into this position of, 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 of a right, of two writers who got obsessed in a way on a certain track and a certain character. That's where I suppose the stewardship of this needed to come in earlier and try and uh-huh. step back. In, and you have the danger then, of course, that, you know, you two and Bonham are effectively writing around themes, their songs. Right. So right. the arc of the show becomes a problem because the show's not traveling. When you listen no, to it it's not score, going anywhere. It, it, actually, it's a very nice album to listen to. I do play that album sometimes because it's actually, these set songs are quite enjoyable to listen to. They're, They're U2 you songs.
0: They and, know how I mean, to write
1: a good tune. And so effectively, though, a lot of songs, as you rightly said, Aaron, if you dissect a U2 song, it is a thematic song that has an arc from beginning to end in what they want to say in that one number. But there was a very big problem with that show, and you've hit the nail on the head about that structure of how U2 write their music. <laughs> Right. these thematic songs which yeah. means that the huge reliance becomes on the book if you haven't yep. got the book which is yep. driving spider-man mm-hmm. it's all about this Arachne. yep you're, you're actually trying now to write songs to order to a to a to a <laughs> right. basically a, a two book writers you've got a, a fascination now of of trying to tell an ovid tale than they have
0: necessarily <laughs> trying to tell a marvel, marvel right. Comic story. right well and and furthermore burger the the guy who came in to write the book uh, even took inspiration from Tamora's interest in adapting Greek theater conventions to have the story be told by something of a Greek chorus in the form of four geeks who were classmates to Peter Peter Parker, spider Man's secret identity. And thus there's the geek chorus again, not characters from the classical canon of Spider-Man, but they were telling a new story now. And you can imagine the two book writers sitting there,
1: Tamar yeah. and Virgil, thinking they were being incredibly clever, have all these wonderful oh, ideas. to yeah. That was- Spring bodies that were sitting there. And also, I mean, let's not forget that when you write a musical or, or even write a play, it's a very insular experience. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, something that seems like such a great idea, you can get a little obsessed and even go a little crazy with it. And oh, I can yeah. imagine that idea of them coming in and said, I've got this brilliant idea. Do you know what we could call them? We could call them the <laughs> geek chorus. Oh, and God, that's so great! That's great. Say, this is yeah. genius and fantastic. <laughs> you know? And actually, it's very dangerous because actually, if oh, you sell man. that and you're into a group where you're suddenly all a bit like, caught in a tunnel vision on a show and also the danger where there is a possible misconception that the title of Spider-Man in the same way as Hal Prince sees the title of Superman, thinks Mm -hmm. that no matter what you do, this will be invincible. Right. And if anything that happens
0: afterwards, it's where those who created King Kong should have learned from the lessons that happened with Spider-Man. So after several meetings between Bono and the Edge, Julie Taymor and Glenn Berger, and overall... Artistic concept and method of teamwork and collaboration had been established, but as you and I have just pointed out, might be a little problematic at times. And they were gonna collaborate and create the new musical, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. On October 20th, 2005, producer Tony Adams met with the four artists in the Edge's Manhattan flat to sign their official contracts. After sitting down, the Edge soon realized he didn't have a pen. He stepped out of the room to get one. When he returned, he saw Adams staring at him wide-eyed and tensing up horribly. Adams soon fell over onto the floor and was completely unresponsive. He was rushed to a hospital and never regained consciousness. Adams died two days later on October 22nd, 2005. It was determined he had a stroke. <laughs> it could be seen as an omen. A little bit.
1: And <laughs> it also becomes an interesting thing because then you can get into the situation we've got to do it for Tony.
0: Now, at this point, the four artists were still a- eager to collaborate, but were unsure of how to proceed since the main producer on the project had very suddenly and unfortunately died. But all this while, Adams had a producing partner at Hello Productions, David Garfinkel, who was an entertainment lawyer out of Chicago. You know, Garfinkel had long wanted to get into producing Broadway plays. And with what appeared to be a hit on all levels, like we're saying, like it's got, you know, huge names attached to it and it's a franchise. We're looking at doing a big commercial show. He was thinking this is going to work, so he chose to proceed despite many indications to do otherwise. I was going to say, let's just look
1: at this, Aaron, just as one second. If, if mm-hmm. this arrived on either yours or my desk, or maybe many other people who are listening, and you looked at the package,
0: you've yeah.
1: got Julie Taymor, director of *The Lion King*, arguably you know one of the biggest hit musicals of the last you know two, three decades, um, yeah. or, of, or even of all time, actually. When you think about mm-hmm. it, you've got you two. And, and uh, you know, their recording pedigree that comes out within all of this. You've They're all ready to go. S- Spider-Man, you know, a recognizable, famous brand known the world over. You've got Spider-Man coming home to his home city,
0: yeah. marketing
1: gold in a city. So, you know, you've got the greatest possible tourist ticket to stand out proudly oh. as it ends up on 42nd Street. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: If you were an
1: investor looking at this, you would say, well, this is this is a no-brainer.
0: This cannot fail. Sounds like it would be an absolute hit on Broadway. And, of course, they wanted the show to be huge, so it had been suggested that the initial budget would be a staggering $30 million, which no other Broadway musical had even come close to. It would be the biggest Broadway budget ever assembled for a musical to date. In May 2007, Sony released Spider-Man 3 which had a mind-blowing budget of $250 million, recorded as the largest budget in cinema history at the time. Tamor attended with Glenn Berger. At the event, Berger recalled that Tamor looked at the entirety of the scene laid out before her, the army of journalists and paparazzi taking thousands of pictures, the fans anxiously waiting to see their stars playing their favorite heroes, villains, love interests, the lights, the sound, the, the, the regalia, the costuming, the, etc., cetera. Et cetera. This was the embodiment of the fandom that Tamer was hoping to capitalize on, and she commented to Berger, See, no one wants to see a $10 million Spider Man musical. <laughs> Later that summer in 2007, a basic script and soundbook had been finalized for a first reading, and a cast and band had been assembled just for this reading. The production team tried to keep the source material of the project a secret from the general press, but word got out that through audition postings for the reading of what the uh, musical was about and who the creative team was, well, the media went bonkers. Yeah, I mean, look, <clears throat> the skill of any
1: show is is the, is the great PR or the great marketeer that's right. behind that doing a show. Right. You, know, mm-hmm. you can you can make a show become a, a huge success and a talking point, but Spider Man again has a lot going for it because oh, yeah. it has that populist hook. If you're looking at an ed- if you're sending this story into an editor who's sitting at a news desk who who might yeah. not be going to the theatre quite as much he, he might be less interested in that more obscure musical but the moment Spider-Man lands he's going to say do you know what if I put this out to a readership in anywhere in the world in any state <laughs> in America in the furthest flung corner they're going to be reading about Spider-Man and they're going to they're, they're going to connect with that
0: you know yep absolutely absolutely and and at this point it had only been really kind of suggested as idea mode we might be yeah. developing a Spider-Man musical at some point and- now. And no. don't forget
1: one other very important thing there, Aaron, which is very important for these newspaper journalists and why they're giving it coverage as much as they are. You think how much advertising is going to be sold on oh. these papers. So if you're judging yes. by shows, when famously they're coming out and they're looking at it, you have to also look sometimes that an editor of a paper or a newspaper owner will often look at certain musicals that are large musicals and say, well, do you know what that good review in the paper for this show or you know that's that could that show of giving it bandwidth of coverage and column inches as we write about it is going to actually engender us if it runs for five years 10 years 15 years an awful lot of advertising that's going to pass through our newspapers oh yeah and, yep, and at exactly. a time when newspapers are in
0: more trouble than they ever have been actually advertising <laughs> is actually really a, an important and valuable strategy absolutely absolutely So this reading, his first reading, it was attended by everyone on the creative and production teams, as well as potential investors and creative management from Marvel. Even Bono and The Edge were able to attend, despite being in the middle of recording a new album in Morocco, and various philanthropic measures that are so synonymous with Bono. There's actually one report that... When all four of them were working one day, his phone kept going off, and he tried to ignore it. And finally, he looked at it and goes, "I've got to take this." And he goes into the other room and comes out a half hour later. He says, "Okay, let's get back to work." And everybody's like, "Wait, what happened? What was so important?" He goes, "Oh, that was Nancy Pelosi on the phone. I have to. Uh, I I had to tell her that she's really got to put forth the aid that she promised to Africa, and she's been delaying it. So yeah, okay, let's get back to work." <laughs> <laughs> now the script presented was nothing anyone could have expected. As I mentioned, Berger was more or less instructed by Tamor to write a script that would challenge even the most complicated and expensive technical elements available in the theater at the time. It did just that. There were so many things that would take months or even years to develop in order to get it right for a live theater audience. But with the rockin' music and lyrics from the music team, the show was more or less given the green light. There were quite a few plot holes to clear up, and the second act needed some serious work, but it was still a go. Even Marvel approved, yet still added the condition, like you said, they could request a change in creative direction of the play at any time. So, the budget was set at an astonishing $52 million. (laughs) Now, Garfinkel understood his inexperience, but was still confident in his place in the production. What Garfunkel felt he was lacking was the ability to make any critical decisions regarding the creative direction of the show. And therefore, he determined his role in the production would be primarily fiscal, and he handed virtually all creative license to Julie Taymor, even though he was given several pieces of advice against this. Taymor was notorious for going over budget in previous productions. Consistently, her defense was that she wanted things to look absolutely right and 100% loyal to the thematic concept. And if it took more time to make something look right, she would take the time. Now, one specific piece of advice that Garfinkel received came from one of her colleagues on The Lion King, who preferred to remain anonymous. (laughs) Quote, you got to stay on top of Julie. She'll spend days and days on one minute of stage time. It will be a brilliant minute but you'll be bankrupt, end quote. And also, or- of course, Garfinkel's not Disney. Yes, exactly. More than anything, Tamor worked best under supervision and Garfinkel didn't do it, much less know how to do it. Pretty you tough.
1: have another interesting thing there as well, of course, don't forget... She is a fledgling Broadway director on Lion King. Right. When she comes to Spider-Man, she's directed probably the, one of the most successful shows of all time on Broadway. Or most right. Successful music. One. That gives you a different, that gives you though a different, a different cashier because of the show that it is. And yeah. the show is still running and it's still packing in audiences. And yeah. the argument that she could say as well, it's the magic that I bring you that will give you the hit. And yep. there is, as with every show, the element of trust that must be placed in that. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the yeah. other thing as well is, of course, that Lion
0: King does not start out the a 52 million dollar budget right <laughs> now as far as the technical elements of the show are concerned julie wasted no time on costume makeup and scenic design and to get the illusion of swinging through the skyscraper canyons of manhattan some pretty impressive flying and rigging systems would be required so it was the venue of the foxwoods theater which is now the lyric where harry potter currently is that was chosen and it had recently staged highly technical productions like Young Frankenstein, and was considered to be the most technically advanced theater on Broadway at the time. Now, Burr's script and Tamor's direction actually called for Spider-Man and his arch nemesis, the Green Goblin, like you said earlier, to fly out over the audience. And it wasn't just a quick out and return to the stage. There were gonna have to be multiple swings and fights above the crowd. And the tech for this really didn't exist in theater yet. So to do the, some of the flying and things, they actually use Skycam technology. And these are the wire suspended cameras that you see zipping all over stadiums at football games. They could hold significant weight. It could basically be programmed to fly an actor from any space in the stage or the house to another. So problem solved there, right? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing I tell you about (laughs) when you saw it in action, which was spectacular,
1: was, you know, there was, and if anyone who's listening saw it, um, they'll remember that you know, you you would look at the dress circle, and there was like a bridge, and he could fly up, and he'd suddenly land there. Right. Or he could yeah. suddenly come down and land in the stalls and take off again. And yeah, yeah, it, this this flying was was pretty incredible, actually. Yeah. And, and sophisticated, and and it was, you know, out, out of anything. What, what people will remember from 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 the legacy
0: of Spider Man? Well, exactly. That's 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 what you see when you go to see Spider Man. He's nimble. He can get, he's he's flying all over the place with his webs and stuff. Yeah. Well, anyway, the Foxwoods Theater wasn't really equipped at that time to do what Spider Man needed. Thus, a full renovation of the Foxwoods was required. And many of the decorative plaster and ironwork pieces were removed from the theater so that they could be put into storage while rigging and construction was completed. These pieces had to be specially wrapped or contained and stored in a warehouse. So, Leasing the space for all this time for design, set building, reconstruction, and overhaul, in addition to Tamor's expenses she had already incurred, Garfinkel's coffers soon began drying up. None of the construction of the renovation had been factored into Garfinkel's original budget. In addition, because of these delays, an investor who had committed to paying for most of the uh, renovation backed out of the project the night before the official papers could be signed. All construction and renovation had to be put on hold. All construction workers were given a final check until further notice. And it said that as soon as this announcement was made, the workers dropped everything they were doing and ran out with the check to their respective banks to make sure the check could be cashed. (laughs) <laughs> I mean renovations of theatres of course are not an, 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 uncommon, an uncommon no thing. no 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 yeah uh, you
1: know, you've really got to either have enormous sums of money to, to convert that and you've really got to make sure that it sits oh, and, yeah. it, it works and serves the show in the way that it's that it's going to in its, in its yep. conversion and, and as I say the, the Foxwoods is you know a, probably a,
0: quite a complex space to, to adapt and, uh, and yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah now all of this all of this made doubt grow in Garfinkel's ability to run the play on his own. Oh, and I suppose I should factor in uh, the Great Recession of 2008. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. The, I mean, just timing. It's, it's, like like a perfect, it's like a perfect storm. Oh, my God. The crash of the economy scared off a lot of potential investors, given the state of the world and the already flawed reputation of the project. The project seemed at something of a standstill. But... A faint glimmer of hope came in 2009 when the Walt Disney Company acquired Marvel Entertainment for $4 billion, effectively having creative control over all its products with some exceptions. Spider-Man would not necessarily be one of them. And with a mega billionaire company like Disney now in control, the play could be saved. But in the announcement, nothing was said about Turn Off the Dark. You see, Disney didn't seem to have any interest in the show, or its dire financial situation. They said nothing. But you see, you've got to think about Disney at
1: this stage, because Disney was also coming off two shows that had been slightly less successful for them on Broadway. Mm. The first was Tarzan, which had been an all-expected hit. Oh, with Phil yes! Collins. And of course, sitting there, Phil Collins, another, you know, iconic music writer and yep. the expectation of that show had been to be a long running a, a long running success on Broadway and little mermaid which didn't click in the way that it should have done little mermaid was really a yeah, sellable titles that should have been right in there in the kind of Beauty and the Beast ilk, and it, it didn't achieve the longevity that, um, that, um, you know, the, the Lion King had certainly done. They were trying to work out how they would emulate their next success. Tarzan right. did, in fact, go on and have quite a significant and successful life in Germany, um, and oh, has yeah, been yeah, played elsewhere. But of course, don't forget. There we have it. Then so there's a, a another pop star who's written a score, yep, and it hasn't yep. it hasn't quite clicked. It didn't have quite the same visual elements to the extent that Spider Man had. It did have flying yeah. in it. There was quite an element of of you know lots of swinging over the stage and different things going on. Right. with Tarzan.
0: Well, I think for this one too, um, you know. I've got two sons. They are mad about comic book movies like I am. And, you know, that's been one of those titles that for years, Sony has been like, this is one of our last big franchises that we have. We have to hold on to this. And it's just been within like the last couple of years and even the last month or so that they've been like, okay, Disney, your products are working really, really well. You're handling the character really well. And we're getting a little bit of money off of it. But in 2007, oh, heck no this was i mean they had just made this finish this incredibly successful trilogy and i'm sure disney was like i don't even want to get into that boat right now (laughs) also there's another interesting
1: thing and perhaps you've nailed it right on the head there's another reason why spider-man is a tougher sell and let's just let's just look at this for a second which Mm -hmm. is that fathers and sons like often superhero stories and superhero books. Oh, yeah, they yeah. They watch them together. No disrespect to, 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 to the ladies in the house, mm-hmm. but more often, female audiences do not always watch as closely in those markets as the fathers and the sons sitting together. Right. You know, if you look at if you look at Wicked, its foundation of Wicked has been founded often on a lot of you know young girls making their first trips to Broadway, sometimes with their mums, you know, going yep. and seeing that show on Broadway. <laughs> now, fundamentally, if you think about a large demographic of who book theatre tickets, women often book theatre tickets more than, than men. They'll uh-huh. look at it and say, I want to see this show let me take my boyfriend or my husband along to see that. Right. Or I'll take my daughter or my family. So if they're being led by that, Spider-Man certainly might be popular if they've got a son.
0: But actually
1: the hook of what drives the appeal to that show might be less appealing at the start than some of the other property titles that are sitting there on, on the marketplace. Lion King feels a much broader show to like because as you could take son and daughter to see that and possibly right, enjoy right, it. Right, yeah. yeah. What was wonderful with Spider-Man, I have to say, was when you went to see it at the Fox, was how many dads and their sons were sitting there in the oh, audience watching the show. And actually was cool. there was probably a lot of them making their first trips ever together to a Broadway show to see something. You also have another problem, which is a huge mistake they made from the outset, which is that they actually made a show that's a $52 million show to produce, Yeah. which means that anywhere where you're replicating that, you're going to have to spend the same amount of capital each time.
0: Oh, my God. Which means
1: that you're creating a show that effectively can work as a sit-down in one place. Yes. But actually, Broadway musicals, make their money from being able to be licensed in all those productions around the world. You sit in a challenging position where in a thousand plus seat theater, or 1,900, you've got a weekly break figure, but you've made a show that's actually almost too expensive to replicate anywhere else in the world.
0: Exactly. Now, due to these delays, the fact that Disney didn't pick them up, And the fact that they are running massively over budget, Garfinkel used funds from his own Hello Entertainment to pay up some of the debts and get the production running again. Two of the remaining investors were convinced to increase their contributions to the production. He was also even able to convince this wealthy Texan family of investors to pay the rest of the construction and theater renovation costs, and things were getting moving again. However, it was too little too late. Most of the remaining investors were ready to pull out of the production because of ridiculously long delay in production, the uncertainty of future funding, and frankly, that Garfinkel was really only the producer because the actual producer had died. But the final death knell came from Bono, who was apparently quite irked that the production wasn't doing anything. So... He reached out to Michael Cole, C-O-H-L, who had produced several of U2's tours and knew quite a bit about theater production in England and in Ireland. And in November 2009, Garfinkel was given the boot. The change in production staff would obviously have a huge impact on the already soured reputation of the production. But all of this was overshadowed by the announcement that the show had casted Spider-Man, Reeve Carney. So they were able to keep away from all this bad press by putting this handsome young man out there and going, this is our Spider-Man. Yeah, and Michael Cole's an interesting guy
1: because Michael Cole had come from the rock and roll world. But of course he had been a, a, a quite a, a leading music rock promoter right so there's someone who could probably come in and try and rein the ship i mean one could argue at this point garfinkel, garfinkel apart from the probably the the disappointment and, and 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 anger at the time may have got out and had a lucky escape at this point because uh the,
0: yep <laughs> because
1: the journey of it you know becomes equally as as, as complex and challenging yep. but the thing about it is he's lost the trust of bono and oh, now it, in it, that sense it. you're done You know, michael Cole, who he has worked with before, has a trust. And Bono has that, that trust that this guy yeah. is the guy who's coming in to try and sort of save it and take it yeah. over. Well, so I, by this point, Garfinkel's position is untenable, whichever way you're Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And of course, Cole came in guns a blazing. He was able to amass the $30 million needed to get the production running at full steam again. But this could not change the fact that, as you were hinting at before, the current schedule and rate of expenditures was a black hole for funding. And very quickly, the money completely ran out again. Therefore, Cole had to put the production on hold again, canceling the opening, which was scheduled for February 2010, which would give him the opportunity to completely restructure the company. And by now, the budget for the musical had run over and was now reported to be around $65 million. Good God.
1: (laughs) Now Now you're in an interesting zone because you're in the zone of some very major figures as in bono and the edge not wanting mm-hmm. to lose face either on something right and you've also now lost the goodwill of the press because the press now has found a different story the story that was the excitement of opening becomes into what is the car crash so yeah. actually that the story now becomes one of filling up salacious gossip columns but there's yes. also a desire to say we've you know, we, We've got to do this to prove this. Otherwise, our legacy is going to be we're the people who, who failed to do Spider Man. Right, right. And if, I don't know whether you two and Bono and the Edge are people who necessarily deal with failure terribly well or very often.
0: I, I would so assume, also, assume
1: not. <laughs> it sort of sits there as sort of that line there that maybe some people might joke that failure doesn't feature in my vocab.
0: And,
1: <laughs> you know, particularly if the press are now Lambassia oh, left, man. right, and center, the determination to, to get it on becomes, you know, a driving will, and right. uh, you know, right. and, and let's not forget that there's still this this belief that uh, and optimism that one still is hanging on to in theatre. There it is, yeah. There's Michael Cole that's there has, you know, certainly experienced. There is still a very credible creative team and title in this show yes. that will give you momentum to believe that it still has the, the the property and the ability, if got right, to be a hit.
0: Right. Now, Reeve Carney he would have been joined by a pretty impressive company in the cast, if not for these delays. Evan Rachel Wood of Westworld fame was attached as Peter's love interest, Mary Jane. Alan Cumming of the successful revivals of Cabaret and the Three Penny Opera had signed on to play the Green Goblin. And both backed out due to, quote, scheduling conflicts and rehearsals had not even yet begun.
1: Well, I think the other thing as well is there was now such a bad smell coming about this show. Oh my God, yeah. That, that, that actually there's also the element then of do you want to be involved with this? Right. It's like it's better it's better to to, to step away. And that's an unfortunate thing also in the journey of, of of Spider-Man because now there was this sort of, you know, I don't know whether I want to have my name associated with that enormous flop or indeed to be, you know, if it, if it does flop, Uh, or it could be a hit but let's say the stakes now are looking more to flop your legacy and you're remembered in every book is that the person who came and closed a show
0: yeah you 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 become
1: seen as being responsible because you weren't selling tickets it could make you unemployable in another broadway context on something else
0: right and at that point evan rachel wood had never been in anything on broadway she was just she really was attracted to the project because she did that first reading and yeah um and, you know, at that time, her star wasn't as big, you know, Westworld wasn't as big of a thing, but she was still pretty, pretty big. But for Alan, but Cumming, Alan Cummings
1: with a Tony behind him and a, yeah. and a profile and pedigree, yeah. had quite a lot to lose suddenly on that project. Yeah.
0: In an interview with The Guardian in 2011, Alan Cummings was asked about leaving Spider-Man and responded, My God, that was a lucky escape. Jesus Christ. Talk about dodging a bullet there. <laughs> yeah. Evan Rachel Wood was replaced by Jennifer Damiano, who left her role in Next to Normal to play Mary Jane, and Broadway favorite Patrick Page was then cast as the Green Goblin. And with things running again despite all odds, the production was able to have its first preview on November 25th, 2010. And and there's an interesting question here you see, Aaron, as well, which when
1: you're looking at it, does the star matter? It's arguably it doesn't necessarily, because in a way, um, unless you've got some You know, Unless you've got Hugh Jackman that a young audience is perhaps going to know who are moviegoers, these musical names won't mean so much. The branded title still sticks in the same way as it is with Spider-Man. And in a way, it's such a strong branded title. It's like in the same way as when you look at the Phantom of the Opera, it's such a strong brand. Now, it doesn't really matter who's playing the Phantom. The audience is coming because they associate the image and the identity. Right. You know, there's a few shows that can achieve that. And actually that is the investor's dream. The mm-hmm. investor's mm-hmm. dream is where you can have a show where the brand becomes so strong that it doesn't actually matter. You know, look at Hamilton, you know, it doesn't yeah. matter who's playing Hamilton now. The brand is so strong and that's that's an investor's dream. And Spider-Man, still to the investor, is a very attractive title because right. it doesn't necessarily suggest it needs a star to make that because the star is a pretty big name in its in itself.
0: So here we are, first preview night. November 25th, 2010, okay? This thing has been in development for over eight years now. Here we go. Now it certainly can be said, a preview can probably have some rough patches. I mean, everybody is under the impression that yes, the stage manager can call out and go hold, we gotta fix something and then we'll move on. I mean, I saw King Kong in 2019. It's my understanding the production had to stop almost nightly. I still had a blast at that show, anyway, For the Spider-Man preview, all the negative hype was justified. The preview started 25 minutes later than projected curtain opening time, set pieces wouldn't function correctly because entire pieces of them didn't come out when needed, or they had simply just not been created. Halfway through the first act, the stage manager called out over the overhead speaker to hold so that the stage hands could rush out on stage to help Spider-Man get released from his malfunctioning harness while dangling just out of reach. The audience had quite a fun time with it, responding with lots of laughter and excited every time a stagehand got close.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a sad situation, isn't it? But it's a situation where those kind of experiences become collector's items.
0: Right, right. But in truth
1: you have to look at it in the fact that musicals are incredibly complex beasts to put on.
0: Oh my God. Yeah. yeah,
1: The danger you have now with social media, of course, the trouble being is that everyone (laughs) can can tweet about a show from the first preview. It seems to sometimes forget that previews were made to be exactly that previews when you developed and stopped and started a show. And actually then you had a press night where the show was locked. If it was on Broadway or or on opening night where everyone came and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and then the show got reviewed and published. Now, unfortunately, anyone can roll into the first preview of anything and put something out on social media and Twitter. And, right. and actually, it can really kill a show. I mean, famously with Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Love Never Dies, the sequel yeah. to Phantom of the Opera, where, yep. where two uh, you know, people thought they'd come along and thought it was great fun to tweet out their opinion of the show after its first preview and decided to rename it Paint Never Dries. <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, the trouble being is that when you do that... Uh, A newspaper picks it up and Mm -hmm. it's very hard as it it never could. It couldn't ever shake it off. In a way, one feels for Spider-Man a little sorry for it just by the nature of its beast. And indeed, they're dealing with a really complex show. Of course, what it does is it gives wonderful, uh, you know, theatrical stories and
0: anecdotes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like this one. (laughs) Actor Natalie Mendoza on the preview night had a pretty awful night. In her Broadway debut, playing Arachne, near the beginning, she was suspended over the crowd at one point when her rigging malfunctioned. She was absolutely safe, but stuck out above the crowd for a full eight minutes before the play could continue, just dangling there.
1: <laughs> Unfortunate,
0: right? Anything that involves a bit of flying or mechanics
1: that are that are you always at some degree of peril, and of course, you know. You know, numerous stories of Peter Pan's and things where the oh, right. mechanics yeah. are broken down and people end up being, being hugged up there. It's yeah. just an unfortunate and a bit of an embarrassing thing for the actor just to sort of be sitting there with with a, a
0: gaping audience all sort of looking up at them <laughs> of what's going to happen next. Well, I mean, you know, for Peter Pan, they might have been able to at least swing the actor off into the wings or something. But the way they designed this, you're right out over the crowd. You're dangling there. You're seeing them. They've probably turned on all the lights so you can yeah. see their faces well, looking up at
1: you. But there is nothing worse than being left hanging high and dry over a- Oh my God, stage. Yeah. Plus those wires are very painful actually as
0: well. If you're Oh, I'm sure they are. Warm. And for Natalie Mendoza, this is her Broadway debut. Yeah. I mean, this is the night, you know? Now, yeah. uh, like I said, dangling there, she was absolutely safe. Where she was not safe was backstage. While waiting in the wings for an entrance, she was struck in the head by a piece of equipment that had broken free from her rope. Two days later, two days later, she was determined to have a severe concussion and took the next two weeks off. Yeah, The preview night shenanigans continued. The intermission lasted over 40 minutes. The show was halted again 10 minutes from the end, and that's when most of the audience left. They had seen enough. That's a big problem, of course, and you feel
1: terribly sorry for the actors, especially. Because oh my God. Yeah. 40 minute interval, the work they've got to do just to try and earn an audience back. And then you've, you've, you've worked your, your guts out for for all this time with a really difficult show. And then the audience is leaving before the end because they
0: just can't, yeah. they just can't uh, take it anymore. Right. You know? The show lasted an hour long than it was projected to last. Apparently many of the official reviewers had not been invited to early preview performances Thus, a slew of them broke decorum and purchased their own tickets and were met with a production similar to the first preview. And the bad press that followed was a tidal wave. And this was all before the more serious injuries started and the complete overhaul of the creative team, not to mention the musical had not officially opened. And that is the end of the first half of this two-part episode. (laughs) (laughs) So, we'll go ahead and come back to that again in two weeks, and trust me, there is plenty more to tell. (laughs) It's
1: only the beginning.
0: It's only the beginning. I mean, I I looked at this, at at telling this story, and I'm going, I can't can't do this in a single sit-down hour. I cannot. I cannot do it. And... Uh, the amount of things that happened the difficulty was trying to figure out where to stop because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah, i mean it's just
1: the trying to get to it it's it's it is the most unbelievable story
0: yeah actually. i was watching a mini documentary that we found on on the musical the other day and at the end of it we just went where did this go wrong what thing could we point at and said that's the point where everybody should have said no we should not continue on but even as you're saying richard like a producer's job is to be an optimist so even in the face yeah. of like this went wrong but we can still pull out of it yeah that's something to me but, that's really but you something.
1: also have now a, a runaway card and a lot of tunnel vision i mean to be honest with you there's a lot of producers who have lost their houses over trying to produce musicals. But the thing about it is when they're in that deep, when there's so much drive, it's like there is still the belief that they think somewhere they've got a hit, which is is why you're coming each day to try and do it and put it on. Right. There is a a misguided madness to this, which Uh is going on. But, uh, But actually maybe there isn't because ultimately somewhere in that, there is going to be another Cats. People still look back to Cats. Somewhere Garfinkel, and Cole and you two, in some sense, are sitting back remembering that in the thick of this, there was a musical called Cats that happened in the 1981. And you have to remember how significant this is in how oh, it changes yeah. 80s, 80s musical perception. Because Cats basically begins the global blockbuster, in a yeah, way. Right. Which means that you do get the misguided belief, if it is a misguided belief, that something like Spider-Man... You know, is going is still going to work because somewhere that it didn't work for cats, but actually it did. Nobody right. believed it was going to work, right. and that's no? where you find the op- that's where you find the optimism in it. Right. Oh. Sadly, you forget about some of the others that fall down along the way that weren't quite as successful. Oh, right. <laughs> and no producer is ever going to produce a show not believing
0: their show is going to be the most successful. Right, and you just you just hold on to that hope.
1: This well, yeah, group. and actually, in fairness, they've got more to think that they should be a better chance of being successful. Than they can just give up because they've got you two and a, a and a brand. I mean, they've got a title right. and a and a, a bad and Judy Table. So, as a yeah. package, it's far stronger than a lot of other broader musicals that are trying to come out of the gate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, but because of its profile and because of who's involved, that makes the media side of it become so much more delicious. If they want to suddenly go and a, a, attack it, because hey there's some very famous people connected with this so that makes a great that makes a great news story
0: right and then anything that came out of it that was bad like oh we heard we heard that they they had to delay oh now it's now the mysticism is rising on it yeah well we'll get into that next time then (laughs) (laughs) okay and for this episode of Euripides Humanities I am Aaron Odom and we will see you next time Hey, friends, this is your host, Aaron Odom, coming at you again. I want to thank you for listening to today's episode. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us a review wherever you pick this podcast up. Or go ahead and like, share, subscribe, all the cool stuff you do with podcasts. We are Trident Theater. That's T-H-E-A-T-R-E. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or at our website, www.tridenttheater.com. Once again, this is Aaron Odom. And we try to get a new episode out every two weeks. So, hope to see you again in a fortnight.